Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week, you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. If you've got your Bibles, though, I hope they're already open to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at just a couple of verses today. And remember that Paul's whole intent in writing this is to bring the Philippian church to an understanding of living out their faith to the glory of Christ Jesus and that their life sacrificed for Christ will ultimately result in spiritual gain both for themselves in this moment and in eternity because there's this promise of resurrection that lies for every true believer. It's out there on the edge of things, and uh, it awaits us, and that is the gain that is out there. And so Paul wants us to remember that living for Christ is critical. In fact, Philippians 1.27, the first part of the verse, he says this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we are called to live a life differently. So we have talked about a number of things in getting to this, what he's talked about, what this life lived for Christ looks like. And it is, it's one of suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus and yet still living a faithful witness. It is a life of humility and service toward other believers in the world around us. And it's also a life of sound doctrine and practice. Paul doesn't say, just be good people and then I'll see you in heaven, but he says there are specific areas of life, including calling others to follow after Christ in faith, humbly serving one another, and also preserving the doctrine that is so critical to the life and vibrancy of the church, and then living it out. All of these are part of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so by the time we get to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul is actually beginning to wrap up this letter. And he's beginning to, to really just tell the Philippian church exactly what he wants them to do. And then he'll actually move on a little bit and share a little bit more in the, the following verses. But if we were to look, verses 4 through 9 of chapter 4 are really the conclusion of the letter. They're the ending thoughts of the letter. They are the summary of all that Paul has taught up to this point. Now, Paul is just like any other good preacher. He will say, and in conclusion, and we know that this is just like another hour's worth of preaching coming. And, and that's where we're at here. So we're going to get the conclusion, and then he's going to keep teaching us on a couple of other ideas. But these verses, 4, four through 9, are the end of the letter. But we're going to focus in today on just the first four verses of this conclusion because they contain so much that if we went to the last two as well, we would be here until dinner time. So uh, we're, we're going to try and focus in and get through these, these few verses and, and uh, see the beginning of the end. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul says this to the church in Philippi and to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins the conclusion of this uh, teaching to the church in Philippi by telling them and us this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now rejoice, that's an interesting word. It's one that uh, we, we sometimes get confused and think that it, it must mean happiness. It must mean, you know, always being giddy and dancing a jig. And there should be some of that in the Christian life. But that isn't what Paul is saying. He's not saying put on false pretenses, put on masks, pretend like everything's okay. Every time you come to church, when somebody asks you how you're doing, be sure you say, fine, and then walk away. That's not what Paul is saying. He wants us to get to a point, and we'll see more of this detail post-conclusion when he gets into the P.S. part of his letter, that he wants us to be at a place where we can walk with Christ and no matter what the circumstances around us, be able to find things to be thankful for, be able to find things that are both cheering and uplifting to us to celebrate. So he says to us, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. And you might recognize this word, you rejoice. It's actually the third time Paul has used it in this letter. Earlier in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 1, he's told us to rejoice in the Lord. And this isn't just a recommendation. This isn't just, hey, by golly, if you want your day to be good, learn how to rejoice. He's not a, a positive speaker. In fact, these, when he says rejoice, these are all commands. Rejoice in the Lord. You, you can almost just, just hear, as you think about it being a command, the tone changes. Because it goes from one of rejoice in the Lord to rejoice in the Lord. Make a choice to behave differently. Make a choice to have a different perspective on life. It is a command to rejoice. Not just a power of positive affirmation kind of, you know, hey, think good thoughts. But learn how to rejoice. And in here in chapter 4, verse 4, he doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again to you. Rejoice. He wants us to understand he means it. Not only has he said it twice before, but now in saying it the third time, he says it twice in the third time because he knows we're a little dense. He knows that we can struggle to understand exactly that this is, this is something that is important to living the Christian life. And so when we talk about rejoice, what does it mean? Well, I read one commentary that gave this definition that I thought was just beautiful. They said it was the deep delight shared between parties. So when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, it is this, this command to join in with Christ, to, to be in such intimate fellowship with Christ and others who bear the name of Christ, other believers, that we find this deep delight in life. It doesn't mean that circumstances are perfect, but it means that things are good because of who you're with 
and your way of looking at circumstances. Now, you might not think this of me, and I know I've said it a number of times, but I don't mind standing in front of a crowd of people and preaching. The size of a crowd does, just doesn't bother me. I've been in front of a couple thousand students, and it was just no different than being in front of five or ten people in a Sunday school class. But you put me in a social circumstance where I have to talk to somebody about something other than church, and I'm just like, uh. And, and if it's noisy, it's even worse. If I can't really wrap my head around what's going on, if I'm not in control of the situation, I just kind of slink off into the corner, and I'm just kind of like, all right, if I can just survive, I'll be okay. Those kinds of circumstances, those kinds of social circumstances are so difficult for me, which is why it's really cool when Shelly comes with me. Because it's like no matter how scary the moment is for me, how overwhelming it feels, if she's just beside me, I can not just survive, but actually find good in the experience and begin to relax a little bit and enjoy. And it, she doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't have to like coddle me. She doesn't have to wait on me. She doesn't have to say, okay, Michael, now come on, let's go talk to people. But, um, <laughs> but instead, what she does, just her very presence changes my perspective. Now, does it mean that I'm all of a sudden the life of the party? If you've ever been around me in a circumstance like that, you know, no, he is not the life of the party, but at least we know where he is. He hasn't hidden off in the dark corner anywhere by himself. He's there and, and participating. And it, it really is this ability that, that exists when she is with me to, to see the positive in the circumstances. To be able to not just survive and run away, but instead to say, this can be good. I can get something from this. Do, do you see the correlation? We should be in a, a place with Christ where when we walk into any circumstance, no matter how dark, loud, or overwhelming, we can find comfort and rejoice and say, this is scary, this is difficult, this is painful, but I can see good in this. I can see hope in this because of who's with me. Because of who's walking beside me. Who is, is, is the most important relationship in my life. He begins to redefine my circumstances. Instead of being overwhelming, they become hopeful. Instead of being dark, they become full of potential. Now, I'm still in the circumstances, right? But my perspective has changed. And I see hope in them. And it's just this ability to come together with Jesus and others who rejoice in Jesus or know Jesus intimately and to, to just find deep delight in life simply because we're with them. Simply because he helps bring light to the darkness, hope to the hopelessness, helps to eliminate that anxiety and that fear. And it, rejoicing, then, if we were to talk about rejoicing, it is this this privilege of walking with Jesus and others who are with him and learning how to celebrate things. And I don't mean like, you know, party, but, but like to be thankful for, to say, this is good. Everything around it's trash, but this is good. To delight in things. 
My, my family has a, a beautiful gift of cynicism. I mean, if cynicism were a spiritual gift, my family, every member in my family has it. And we are, we are like deeply gifted in it. And, and I, I don't say that with pride, really, because I know where it comes from. It, it comes from, from me. It's birthed in me. I taught my kids how to be cynics. I taught my kids how to look at something and go, that's stupid. And, and I'm, not, I'm not proud of that. But, but what I'm trying to do as I have matured in my walk with Christ is to get to the point where instead of allowing them and myself to look at everything around and go, that's stupid. I hate that. This is the worst. To instead come to a place where I can go, I don't prefer this, but, but look at the good here. Look at the hopefulness here. Look what God has blessed us with. And I don't know if anybody else struggles in that way. If anybody else has a family like that, where you find, as a family, it's fun for you to go to the mall, not because you like to shop, but because you like to make fun of people. <laughs> right? If you're that kind of family, the hope is that you can begin, especially fathers and mothers, as you mature in your faith, you begin, instead of walking into circumstances and always finding the negative and always complaining and always being cynical about it, that you come to a place where you can do what Paul is telling us to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Walk into life and delight in what is before you because of who you're walking with. Walk into every circumstance and you may not like it. You may find it overwhelming. You may find it fearful. You may not think it's cool. But still to be able to see and celebrate something that's there because of who you're with. Now, if your family is anything like mine, as you begin to encourage them to see positive things, you will become an object of ridicule and cynicism. And they will make fun of you. Stop it. There's nothing cool. You're such a... Yeah, anyway. Uh, and, and so it's, it's important that, that we don't give up in this. Rejoicing is not an easy task, is it? Which is why Paul has to tell us to do it in three different circumstances, or three different places, and repeat it twice in the third. See, rejoicing is just not easy. We need help. Rejoice. Find the positive. Find what you need to celebrate. Find something to delight in because of who you're with. You're always with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. In Philippians, uh, there are 104 verses. And I know because I did the math, and I'm decent at math with a calculator. And so uh, in, in Philippians, there are 104 verses. In the Christian Standard Version uh, of the Bible, uh, there are 48 direct references to Jesus. Either saying Jesus Christ or Lord. So 48 direct references to Jesus, and that's not even counting the times where it uses a pronoun to refer to Jesus. He or him or his. And, and so there are, there are just so many references to Jesus, to Christ, to, to, to Lord within the book of Philippians. And in this book, some form of in the Lord Jesus Christ is used at least 18 times. So what it means is Paul, in writing this letter, he wants the church of Philippi, he wants you and I to look at life and see everywhere around us our Savior. To see his presence in every circumstance. 
to begin to do things in Christ, in His name, in His presence, to begin to define ourselves according to His presence and His goodness and the salvation that has come to us through Him alone. Paul wants us to see Jesus as both the source and the object of our ability to rejoice and celebrate and delight. In other words, I can find good in every circumstance. I can find something to rejoice about because Christ has redeemed me and he has redeemed my circumstances when I have taken him as my Lord and Savior. And and now I can see that there is positive happening. There is good happening. His hand is in everything. He is moving and doing. He is providing. I can rejoice because I look at what he has done. So he is the source of my ability to rejoice in every circumstance of life. And he also can be and should be the object of my rejoicing in every circumstance of life. And what do you mean object, Michael? Well, I mean, Scripture tells us so clearly that Jesus is first the sacrifice for our sins who died on the cross and rose again on the third day. But it tells us he is our creator. It says that he is our sustainer. He is the one that holds all things together by his hands. That the fact that you have a day, whether it is good or bad, is a gift from Jesus Christ himself. And it is because he is your creator and sustainer that you are even having a day today. And so Jesus, he is the one who gives us things by which, or for which we should rejoice. And he is the one who makes it possible for us to even be alive, both spiritually and physically. And so he is the source of rejoicing for all of us who have proclaimed him to be our Lord and Savior. And he is the object of rejoicing. He is the one who has made it all possible just by his existence. And so even when you look around in the circumstances and you have nothing else to rejoice about, nothing else to be positive about, you can always look to Jesus and say, I am so happy that you're holding me together today. Thank you for this breath. Thank you for this heartbeat. Thank you that my mind still sort of works. Thank you that, that, that you have made all of this possible. Some of it's dark, some of it's a little bleak, but man, so much of it is worth experiencing. And not only that, you saved me, Jesus. You died for me. You rose again. You are the forgiver of my sins. You're my friend that, that, that's closer than a brother. You're my older brother in, in, in faith. You, you're my king. Jesus, you are so much to me. Even when nothing else is worth rejoicing over, Jesus is worth rejoicing over. And so when Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord, I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. There's always something to celebrate. There is always something to delight in. Some days it's easier to find those somethings, isn't it? But there's always something when you are in Christ, when you are in the Lord, when you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have built your life over time around Him and Him alone, you can find something to rejoice in. 
to celebrate, to delight in, to smile about. And Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. I say it again, when the day's going good, rejoice. No. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And so he's encouraging us, commanding us really, to build a lifestyle of rejoicing and celebrating and delighting in the work and person of Christ and the gifts that flow through him into our lives. I just, I, I got to take you on a journey in your mind. Imagine with me, if you will, the ability to walk into a circumstance that you despise. And instead of talking about how terrible it is, telling yourself how horrible things are, and complaining about everything, you walk into that circumstance and you begin to rejoice. You begin to celebrate what has already been done for you on the cross, what is done for you in every moment of breath-drawing life and heartbeat-happening life, you begin to rejoice in those things, even if the circumstances are garbage. You begin to celebrate and rejoice. Do you think that would change your day? I can speak from experience. I know it will. When I walk in and I'm a cynic and I'm, I'm critical and I'm judging and I'm nitpicking circumstances, do you know where my attitude goes for the day? To the toilet. Seems likely true for you. When I'm able to have a right focus, when I'm able to rejoice in the Lord as I'm supposed to, I find my day is better even if my day's not good. And that life is worth living in a way that it's not when I am cynical and bleak. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. This word uh, graciousness, it can be translated a number of different ways. Uh, some of your, your translations might use a different word, but at its heart it really means to have a forgiving spirit and to be compassionate like Jesus. So Paul says to the Philippian church, I want you to always have a mindset of finding things to celebrate because of who you are in Christ Jesus and your relationship with him. I want you to create a lifestyle of delighting in the goodness of God. And then I want everyone around you to know of your compassionate spirit and your forgiveness. The way that you treat others in light of who you are in Christ is critical. And he doesn't say it to just, just, just how you treat other Christians. He says, let your graciousness be known to the people you like. No. Let your graciousness be known to the people who are like you. No, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Let your forgiving spirit, let your compassion that's like Jesus himself be known to everyone you encounter. So these are already, just these two verses, we have been given these, these huge tasks. Rejoice in the Lord always. Delight in your circumstances in Christ Jesus as a lifestyle. And then everyone you meet, 
Let them know how forgiving you are. Let them know how compassionate you are. These are big, big commands that he's wrapping up with. But they also fall in line with with what he's taught us previously. If we go all the way back, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's already told us very clearly, this is supposed to be a lifestyle choice for us. That everyone should know from us an attitude of humility and forgiveness and grace and compassion. And and, and there are no qualifiers that limit everyone, are there? Everyone. So you you can just close your eyes and you can picture that one person. That one person. You know who I'm talking about. That one person. Let your graciousness be known to that person. Let your compassion, your forgiveness, your tenderness be known to them. And that's, that's where you can start. And then it should expand out, you know, the, the, register, the cash register, cash, cashier at the grocery store. And not the, not the self-checkout. I mean, you're always nice to yourself. But I mean that when there's actually a person there, you know, gracious the bank teller, not the ATM, but like when you actually talk to a person, right? You get the picture with your children. That's probably one of the biggest challenges I have ever faced, and I have failed miserably at it at times. Thankfully, my children have been gracious toward me and allowed me to mature in this. But your children, your spouse, your siblings, your parents, let your graciousness be known to everyone. And so this is why, really, we are inspired to be gracious, to be forgiving, to be compassionate, because God has been forgiving and compassionate toward us. Psalm 86.5, the psalmist writes this, For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. This is how God has treated us. He is kind and ready to forgive. Is that how you would be described by those you are encountering on a regular basis? Kind and ready to forgive? Or how about this, Ephesians 4.32. To the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Last week we talked about there should be unity amongst us. We should be reconciled. We should not hold grudges. We shouldn't uh, walk around in unforgiveness. We should be forgiving those we have things against and letting those that, that have hurt us know that they've hurt us in a gracious and kind way that they too might have an opportunity to, to find reconciliation. And, and this flows from not some... God tells us to do something so we should do it, but rather God has done it for us so we should do it for one another. Kind and compassionate, forgiving one another just as God forgave you in Christ. And then Paul says this to the church in Philippi and to us, the Lord is near. Now this is a a, a double statement in some ways. It is both 
God is close to us, and the day of Christ is closer today than it was yesterday. And so we are both intimate with our Savior and His return is ever sooner. And so we need to be aware of how we're living. Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19 says this, The Lord is near to all who call out to Him, all who call out to Him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. God is close to us. And because God is near, we know that when we pray, He hears our prayers. And so Paul says this to us, Don't worry about anything, but in everything... Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we've been told, in this conclusion, we've been told, rejoice. We have been told, walk compassionately. And now he says to us, don't worry about anything. But instead of some trite song, don't worry, be happy now, where he's encouraging us to put on airs, he tells us how to overcome the worry and the anxiety that can so easily plague us. He says, don't worry. And this worry, or this, 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 what he says here is a, is a command. Don't worry. This isn't just an exhortation. This isn't just an encouragement. It is a command. What happens when you don't do what you've been commanded? You are violating the command. You are disobedient. So if scripture commands us, don't worry, what should we avoid? Worry. We should avoid anxiety to the best of our abilities. It's a command. Now, it's not a call to be careless. Oh, I don't worry. Yeah, but your house is falling in around you. Oh, I don't worry. God will take care of it. Yes, but... But you haven't worked in 20 years. Oh, I don't worry. God will take care of it. There's no food in your home. Oh, I don't worry. God will take care of it. No. Not a, care to careless, or not a call to carelessness. But one to, to avoid worrying about, uh, or to avoid worry and anxiety. Jesus actually talks about worry in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you want to turn with me there, you can. If you just want to listen, that is fine too. But really what Jesus is, is, is talking about is this anxiety over the daily affairs of life. Because when we obey fully and work according to our abilities, it's our place to then trust God for the provision of everyday needs according to His faithfulness. And that's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. A command once again. What you will eat or what you will drink or about, or about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he goes on to speak about the birds of the sky that God takes care of. He goes on to tell us about the, the, uh, the grass the, the wildflowers of the field that are adorned in some of the most beautiful attire that God has provided for them. And, and, and so if God will take care of birds and God will take care of grass 
and wildflowers in such a way, will he not take care of his people? And, and the answer is, of course he will. Of course he will take care of us. So Jesus says this in verse uh, 31, So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. See, Paul's saying, don't worry, but pray. And Jesus is saying, don't worry, but trust. And know that the things that you need when you are walking in accordance with the commands of God, when you are faithful to who he has called you to be, when you are doing the best you can in providing and working for things, that he will then make up the difference. Don't worry. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Don't worry, but trust God, is what Jesus says. And Paul says, don't worry, but in Anything and everything, which is an absolute command. No area of life is left out. Don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer, petition, and thanksgiving and requests. Don't worry, but pray. In fact, the four words here, there are four different words in the Greek for prayer. And sometimes we can get bogged down and we can think, well, what does each one mean specifically? And, and exactly what do I need to do? What's the formula for prayer? And the thing is, is Paul isn't giving us a formula for prayer and saying, here are the four specific ways you need to pray so that the worry will go away. He is simply saying in four different ways the same thing because we're dense. Because we won't even pray at all when we're worried. But he wants to tell us over and over again, four different times he reiterates it, pray, pray, pray thankfully, and pray. This is not a formula for overcoming anxiety. What this is, is Paul telling you and I over and over again, when you are struggling with worry, which you shouldn't struggle with at all because it's not with, in accordance with God's plan for your life and his desire for who you are as a Christian, when you are struggling with worry, pray, pray, pray. And then pray again and some more. And pray with some thanksgiving mixed in. It's not a secret formula to avoid anxiety. It is pray. Get down on your knees, stand up straight, lay down on your face, sit in the recliner, close your eyes, lift up your eyes open to the sky. Whatever you're doing, when you worry, stop worrying and instead pray. Throw in some thanksgiving, which sounds a lot like what? Oh, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again to you, rejoice. Tell God what, what it is that he's done for you that delights your heart and that you're thankful for. What's interesting is when 
we're worried as we begin to celebrate what we already have and what God has already done, the worry just kind of melts away because we can see that he's already been faithful. Won't he be faithful again and again and again to provide those things that we need? Now, nowhere in Scripture does it say, trust Jesus and your life will be perfect. Nowhere. But what it does say over and over again is trust Jesus, and when your life is imperfect, he will sustain you. And there's no need to worry. That's not in accordance with who he made you as a new creation. But instead, when you're struggling with worry, pray. And pray. And pray thankfully. And pray. And this kind of brings us to what Jesus taught about prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Once again, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching what some consider to be like the, the constitution of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus teaches about prayer. He teaches us and all his other disciples about prayer. And he says this, Therefore you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We see Jesus telling us, this then is how you should pray. And sometimes we take this a little too literally and say, this is the only prayer we should pray when we don't know, or you know, when we're praying. And then sometimes we don't take this literally enough, and we think, well, you know, Jesus, he's just saying pray, and it's all good to just be free form, like, hey, God, you're my dude, and, uh, you know, today is kind of bleak, so I'll make it better. Amen. But Jesus does lay out for us, not a formula, don't hear that, but, but a, a means by which prayer becomes more meaningful. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or may your name be exalted as holy. We want to begin with a time of worship. We want to begin by declaring, God, the only reason I, I even think that this prayer matters is because you're the king of creation. You're the God over it all. You're the one who can make a difference here. You're the one who will provide all of my needs. You are the one who will sustain me through every dark time. This is why this moment matters. You are worthy, and so my prayer matters. Then Jesus talks about submission. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It is this attitude of, God, above all else, I want your plans to come to pass in my life. Above all else, I want your ways to become my ways. And so I submit myself to you. Now, some of us are thinking that God's ways and God's plans for us are secret and hidden. And I have to tell you, they're not. Because God's plans for us and his desires for how we live are clearly expressed in his word. And the problem for many of us is that we say we want his ways, but then we don't live as though his ways matter. He speaks to us so clearly. He talks about men and women. Watch what you put into your eyes because it can cause you to lust. He talks about not hating our brothers, but granting forgiveness. He talks about the importance of marriage, the sacredness of the marriage covenant. 
He talks about don't be drunk with wine because it makes you stupid. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. <laughs> I mean, God's will for us is so clear in so many ways that we deny over and over again. And so sometimes when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we don't even mean it. We've already rebelled against it in so many ways since we woke up this morning when the alarm went off. And so it is about coming to a point. You want to you escape the anxiety that comes up in life so, so easily? Coming to a point where you spend time in worship to God and then genuinely submitting to His will for your life. And what you already know to do, start doing it. And the things He's already said clearly, obey those. Be submitted. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life today, even as it is in heaven. And I'm going to start living what I already know to be clear. And then Jesus teaches us about what else to pray. And it's not, here's my laundry list of things that I'd like you to fix in my life. But they are all expressions of trust after this. Give us today our daily bread. You, God, I trust you to provide for me my needs for today. Forgive us our debts or our sin as we forgive those who've sinned against us. I trust you to make me right before you, even as I seek to be right with others. And don't bring me into temptation, God. Oh, I'm weak and I am frail and I will probably mess up, so keep me from temptation and deliver me from the evil one. You see, it, Jesus sets this standard for prayer in the Lord's Prayer that sometimes we take a little too literally and we just recite it, but a lot of times we don't take it literally enough and we don't live out what he clearly teaches us. Paul says, when you're struggling with worry, pray, pray, pray with thanksgiving, and pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, spend time in worship. When you pray, Submit yourself to the will of the Father. When you pray, tell Him why you trust Him. And when you get to the end of that, anxiety is washed away for the moment. Why? Because you are so firmly planted in the hands of the Almighty God and trusting Him for every breath and moment that there's no longer anything to worry about about. He becomes central to you. He becomes all that you need and all that you are. Sometimes we think that prayer is about us trying to coerce God to do what we want. Don't we? Maybe if I, if I say it the right way or I, I say it loud enough or I weep hard enough that, that I will be able to convince God to do what I would prefer and Jesus kind of gives us a different perspective on prayer here that it should begin with and end with worship and submission and a declaration of God, no matter what the circumstances, I trust you to care for me. Now, it doesn't mean we don't lift up grandma in prayer and say, God, according to your will, would you heal grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, my left toe, Whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we don't 
lift up our petitions to him, but what it means is as we lift up our petitions, it isn't, God, if I say this right, you'll do it. It is, I trust you to make provision for my needs. I trust your hand in this. And guess what? When God says no to something you've asked for, that's still his plan and his perfection and his goodness coming to pass in your life. And that's not always easy to deal with. But Paul says, don't worry because you can trust God. Don't worry because he will take care of you. Stop being anxious. And instead, practice a lifestyle of worship and submission and trust that God genuinely cares for you and loves you and has a plan and a purpose in your life. And Paul says this, when we pray, when we submit ourselves to the will of the Father, when we come and we humble ourselves and we are thankful and we are trusting in His hand for provision, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word peace, it, 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 it means in, in Greek, uh, you know, a, a ceasing from striving. In, in the Hebrew, the word uh, that we would see in, in the Old Testament is shalom. And, and so it, the context here is specifically this, this wholeness of God's presence, this ability to just know that life is complete because of the work of God. Even when things are incomplete, your life is complete and whole because of what God is doing in you. And that you can trust in Him. And so this ability to just rest in His presence because you've turned everything over to Him, it'll come upon you. This peace of God, which won't make sense at all. Some of us have known folks who were sick, even to the point of death. And you walk in and you're talking to them and, and it's just, you want them to be upset, but they're not. They're just at peace. They know where they're going when they pass. They know that their life or death is in God's hands. And so they are able to just say, I would really like to see next Christmas, but if I don't, it's all good. And we go, what is wrong with you? Don't you want to live? And they can say, well, yes, but I'll also live if I die. I trust my Savior. I trust my God. I know that, that whether it's this or that, it's all of Him, and it's good. And I submit to His plan and His perfection for me. And it says this peace of God, which won't make sense in the bleakest of circumstances, especially, what will it do? It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This, this picture of guarding is, is a literal military term of there will be guards posted, armed guards protecting your hearts and minds. Now, of course, it's, it's a metaphor. It's, it's a picture of just how diligent the Father will be to guard your emotions and your thoughts when you submit yourself to Him. How beautiful this is. How amazing this is when we're struggling to be able to hear Paul, his voice echoing through the ages in the book of Philippians and, and Christ speaking through him, telling us all, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. And when you're struggling with anxiety, submit your life to the Father 
and he will give you peace. And so we, we, we get this all beautiful together. Rejoice, celebrate, and delight in the life that you've been given. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And then pray, 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 pray thankfully, and pray, pray the Lord's Prayer. Or at least according to the standard by which it, or the standard it gives us to, to worship, to submit, and to trust. Rejoice, forgive, pray. This could make a good t-shirt, couldn't it? Just, just these few verses. Rejoice, forgive, pray. We all probably should just get this like tattooed into our hearts. Rejoice in the Lord always. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And pray when you worry. Rejoice, forgive, pray. This is, this is like a formula, a, a, a standard for daily life, isn't it? Rejoice. Stop being such a cynic. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Pray when you're worrying. And not just every once in a while. And not just when you remember. And not just on Sunday mornings. But each of these we have been told to do always. Or in regard to everyone or everything. So this is supposed to be a lifestyle. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your forgiving spirit be known to everyone. Don't worry about anything, but in everything. Pray and submit yourself to the will of the Father. You see, this is a lifestyle of rejoice, forgive, pray. And it brings us to this point again where we look back at Philippians 1.21 and Paul telling us, for me, for all of us as believers, to live is Christ. What does it mean to live is Christ? It means rejoice, forgive, pray. It means serve. It means willingly sacrifice everything you are and have for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Because when you die, it's nothing but gain. And everything you have invested into the kingdom of God will come back to you and, and, and be even better than what you invested. And not just short term, but long term for eternity in the presence of the very Savior you gave it all for. So as our worship team comes up to close us out in, in song tonight, uh, today, tonight, wow, I must have really thought I went. Um, I want to encourage you, even if you just grab a hold of one of these today, one of these, and, and own it for this week, whether you're going to dedicate yourself to every circumstance you walk into this week rejoicing, that will change your week, I guarantee it. Or how about... Beginning the practice of letting everyone know your compassionate and gracious heart and forgiving and walking in Christ-likeness in relationship with others. How about just that one? Or even, how about just stop worrying and start praying and submitting yourself to the will of God for your life? Even if you just adopt one of these this week, adopt just one of them, it will change life for you. It will change your walk with God. Now, if you can grab a hold of all of these, all the better. All the better. 
as you continue to grow in Christ-likeness. Let's close in prayer, and then the team will close us in song. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have given us your son, Christ Jesus, and that in him we can rejoice. In him we find forgiveness that we might show forgiveness. And in him we see you planning and providing perfectly so we know we can always trust your hand and stop worrying about the day. Today, I pray that we would all at least choose one of these things, to rejoice, to forgive, or to pray, and make that the, the banner of our week, to make that the focus of our week, that in every circumstance, with everyone and everything, would begin to rejoice, to forgive, or to pray. Thank you for the power of your word and how it, it takes us from being people who are uh, sin-laden and broken, and it brings us up into looking more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, and your continued presence in us. Help us